talking about this day of speaking in tongues. I heard a fellow say the other day that our, some denominations and some groups said their choirs sing in Latin and their preachers preach in Greek and it's no wonder the congregation wants to speak in tongues. <laughs> All right, Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. And the same day when evening was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. When he had sent them away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship. There were also with him other little ships. There arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillar. They awake him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What matter of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I spoke to you yesterday, first on lordship, and then last night on revival in the Graveyard Baptist Church. Ezekiel's boneyard. If they didn't have revivals, I said last night in the Baptist Church, thank God we didn't have, or in the graveyard, we didn't have one in the Baptist Church. Their revival's not over. It's still here. They, Dr. Butler ended with the position of revival, and I'm going to take that up in this message here. But I want to say right at the beginning, that this sermon has about six titles. You can just take the one you want, all right? It's called Revival at Sea. Master Control from the hinder part to the forefront. From the pillar to the pilot house or the storms that introduce you to Jesus. Getting acquainted with Jesus. And folks, it is the storms and the trials and the trouble that introduce you to Jesus. Now, I want to thank the Lord for the fact that he's in my ship. All right? I will show you three things today, the Lord willing. First is the destination of the ship. Number two is the disturbance of the sea. And number three is the demonstration of the Savior. And this ship will illustrate either the local child of God or the local church. I mean, the individual. Thank God I can have a revival whether you want one or not. So if I have one, just don't bother me. Because if I have it, I'll bother you enough for both of us. <laughs> like I said last night, you can't have revival without feeling something. You may as well know the Holy Ghost is an emotional person. Well, I want to thank God today that the local church can have revival, the child of God can have revival, and when you have revival, it's a joyous experience once he gets through with you. The process may be difficult. Today we're going to speak about principle. But look at the destination of the ship. Verse 35 said, let us pass over to the other side. Three things you see. First, the presence of the Savior. Second, you'll see the place for the Savior. And then third, you're going to see the pilots and the passenger. But we'll understand this as we go along, all right? But the Scripture says, he, they took him even as he was in the ship. In other words, they pulled the ship up along shore and Jesus got on board and Jesus said, now let's pass over to the other side. Figuratively, that's exactly what happened to me the day I got saved. 
I just pulled the shipman over the shore. said, Jesus, get on board. <laughs> he said, all right. And we've been heading to the other side ever since, Pastor. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And see, there lives a person inside me, and that is my Lord. You say, you going to make it to the other side? Praise God, I already got it made. In me lives a person who lives forevermore who, and guarantees my arrival over on the other shore. Say, so what guarantees your arrival? Gee, or my arrival? Jesus does. How you know you're going to make it to heaven? Jesus already made it. And if he made it, I got it made. Because he died for me. He arose for me. He ascended for me. He sat down for me. So the, so the Father can look over and say, Hello, Charles. I'm already there. I'm not as concerned this morning as to whether or not he's in me as I am in becoming acquainted with him because he's in me I know he's in me I don't doubt whether or not I'm saved praise God I can take it to the time I can take it to the place where God saved me by his marvelous grace no doubt about him being in the shipment and we headed to the other side but also he's in the local church according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13 he's in the midst of the churches and folks when he's in the church he wants you to be acquainted with him and it's the storms of life it's the trials of life that introduce you to Jesus Christ oh that I might know him and the power of his resurrection that I might be acquainted with the person who lives inside of me. We're headed to the other side. But second, I want you to see the place for the Savior. Look at what the Scripture said. The Bible says that he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. When this story begins, Jesus was on board, but he wasn't doing anything. They were doing everything. Now, you know what the trouble in our churches today is? We're doing everything, and he's doing nothing. Now, when this begins, there's a good, nice calm. Everything's just fine. But when it ends, praise God, things are going to be different. Right? All right, here Jesus is, but he's in the hinder part. As though the disciples said, Now, Lord, we sure are continuing to have you on board. We're glad you're here. But now, Lord, just don't bother us while we control this ship. Make yourself comfortable. We got your back room back here in the hind part, and we got you a nice pillar. Just don't bother us while we pilot the boat. And there's our predicament. You ever had your flesh rise up and say, I'm going to pilot this boat? If he's Lord, he's owner and master. And as I said yesterday, you're going to get around to saying, yes, sir. You say, not me. Yes, you will. By the time the storms come, you'll say, yes, sir. By the time you face impossible circumstances, you'll say, yes, sir. But here, they're not facing any impossible situations. They're enjoying their trip to the other side, contented that Jesus is on board, but giving him a place in the hinder part on a pillar and not in the pilot house in control. The trouble with my flesh is I want Jesus to be in the hinder part and let me pilot the boat. 
but he doesn't want that to be. The third thing you see is the pilots are, and the passenger. Now, don't forget this. When the story begins, you got many pilots and just one passenger. Jesus is the passenger, and they're the pilots. When it ends, there's going to be one pilot and many passengers. Second truth. Number one, you see the destination of the ship. Number two, you see the disturbance of the sea. Look at verse 37. There arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Now, this is a very dangerous storm and a distressed ship and some desperate sailors. But before you get too anxious about the storm, you need to see that this was no accident. Jesus knew where to send them, and he knew what was going to happen. He knew what they needed to introduce himself to them. And he knows what I need to introduce him to me. And he knows what this church needs, ladies and gentlemen. What we need is Jesus in control. We need the power of the Lord. We need the demonstration of the Savior. There are four good things about the storm. Number one, it created a situation no one could handle but Jesus. He said, boy, I'm facing something I can't handle. Praise God, you just may be introduced to Jesus. You say, I want to have revival. Revival doesn't come till you face a situation you can't handle. Not until you get in a position to where Jesus must come on the scene or you will sink. And now watch this. I pastored a church one time. I thought I'd gone to heaven. I was just sure of it. I mean, that was an amen in this bunch. I was so alive. They'd praise the Lord to drop a hat. They'd say, glory. Clap your hands there once in a while. Throw the hands. I said, glory to God. I've arrived. This must be the land of Canaan or heaven one. <clears throat> After a while, been there about a month, and the Holy Ghost opened up heaven and gave me a sermon. I mean, it's real as though he jiggled the pen. I was so thrilled and excited and blessed. I couldn't wait to deliver it. I had the preacher itch. I was itching to preach when Sunday came. I got up and preached. And, and, and I won't tell you, I, I, I just couldn't get into it fast enough. I thought our folks are going to hang from the rafters. Glory to God, they're going to jump a pews and run the aisles. They're going to amen and praise the Lord and hallelujah. You've never seen such a spiritual service as we're fixing to have. So I got started. And boy, it was right, right at the very beginning. About halfway through the sermon, I lost my amens. About three-quarters of the way through the sermon, I lost my praise the Lord's and hallelujahs. And toward the end of the sermon, I couldn't get a holy grunt out of anybody. Only person to present is my wife, and she's sitting there with the giggles. Because she knew it came from God. Praise God for spiritual, sensitive wives who'd help you preach when nobody else but you and her and God know it came from him. Amen. And I'm honest about that. Thank God I preached when nobody seemed to get it. I'd look over my wife. She'd... That's like sick of preacher. I got it. And I know my wife got it. Anybody can get it. Amen. That's what she told me now, Brother Curtis. I'm not saying that just so about her. She told me that. She said, if I get it, I'm a good sounding board. You know if anybody's getting it. So I know she's nodding her head and she's getting it. Glory to God. It must be good for somebody. 
So she was this way, grinning, grinning. I looked at the rest of the folks and I was, oh, what's wrong with you bunch? Can't you tell this is from God? And I never could understand why they got so upset. All I was preaching about was tail bearers and gossips and busybodies. And I thought anybody would appreciate that. After this old man walked up to me, he said, you don't know what you did, do you? I said, no, what I did what? He said, you really don't know what you've done, do you? I said, done what? He looked at me the third time and said, you really don't know what you've done, do you? I said, brother, I don't know what I've done. What have I done? He said, you all but called them by name. He said, did you know the gossip's out? I said, gossip? About who? He said, I don't want to tell you. Then I'd have wrung his neck. Then don't I? I said, who? He said, on you. I said, me? I hadn't been here but a month. I said, on me? He said, yeah. And I said, who else? He said, my wife. I said, what? I said, you got to be kidding. He said, no, I'm not. And that's the friends we had. And you know what? They got gossip out on his wife and me before I ever got there to keep me from coming. And I didn't know it. And all I had done, and this is what they said, all I had done... In a, in a previous meeting, he and his wife had come to hear me preach, and we had a glory service one night. And at the service, his wife was standing around at the bunch of them, and I was shaking hands with, her, with, with them, and I saw this man's wife. She's just about to pop. And I just shook her hand and said, Praise God, sister. And she just said, Glory. And from that, they thought we was having an affair. <laughs> That's right. And from that, they accused her of washing my socks and ironing my clothes and doing all those kind of things, taking care of me. So I thought, I got to straighten this mess out. And I started chasing that gossiper. I learned a lesson about chasing gossipers. Man, chasing gossipers is like chasing a skunk. If you ever chase him in a hole, all you got to stink and it's not worth the chase. That's right. I want to tell you something, folks. I was passing a church that the former pastor told the deacon, said, you run the church, you make the business decisions, you make all the decisions, and I'll do the preaching. That's not the way it's supposed to be. When I went there to be their shepherd, I had several deacons who wanted to be shepherds and wanted me to be the sheep, and I couldn't figure out which one to follow. And that's not the way it's supposed to be, like I said. So I began to pray. I said, Lord, this church is not organized right. This church's not functioning, right? And they're not following the leadership of the men of God. So you know what happened? I thought things would get good, but instead they got bad. I never had so many problems in all my life. I mean, the storm started coming. The trials started coming. The trouble in the church started coming. And I said, Lord, it's getting worse. And then it got even worse than that. After a while, one of my deacons said, I got this problem in the church, and we got this problem in the church, and we deacons don't want to handle it. We're going to let you handle it. I went over and said, Lord, thank you. Because those trials 
and that trouble and those storms brought them to a situation nobody could handle but Jesus. And I want to say to you, any time, any time the child of God tries to control his life, Jesus will send him into a storm that will bring him to the end of himself to teach him master control. Anytime a church becomes self-sufficient and self-dependent and self-centered, our Lord stops the machinery of the local church and he puts into operation certain storms and trials to where the church will be brought to the end of itself to cry out for master control. So I say to you very reverently, thank God for the storms that have introduced me to Jesus Christ. And not only did it create a situation no one could handle but Jesus, but second, it created a desire for Jesus to pilot the boat. He was in the hinder part, and now they were facing a storm, but their progress was hindered. They were stopped from going further. They couldn't go any, any, any further to the other side though they knew Jesus was on board. But here was a desire for Jesus to come from the hand apart to the forefront to get off of the pillar and get into the pilot house. And I'm telling you, folks, not until we have a desire for Jesus to control us will revival come. Dr. Butler was talking about that. I can't stand these little old plaques on the cars. God is my co-pilot. For your information, he's never been anybody's co-pilot. And he's not going to start with you. He's either the pilot and you're the passenger, or either you're going to be try, to be try to be the pilot and him the passenger. But any time you're the pilot and he's the passenger, look for the storm, because the storm's going to create a situation you can't handle and desire for Jesus to pilot your boat. I want to thank God today for the storms in my life that have introduced me to the Lord. He's been there all the time. But glory to God, glory to God, do you know who's in your boat? He's the storm stopper. You want to stop talk about that in a minute. Where's revival? Where is revival? There's a point for revival. And the disciples are rapidly coming to it. You're just coming to revival when you realize you're facing a situation that you can't handle. You're just coming to revival when the desire is not for self-effort. When you see the futility of human effort and self-effort and have a desire for God's power, you're coming to the point of revival. Thank God. Now, look, third thing, it compelled them to call on Jesus. Look at verse number 38 where it said, Master, care so not that we perish. Now, I like this. There are some folks... They don't get too excited when we want revival, you know. They say, Lord, give us Holy Ghost revival. I've been in some meetings where, where they had these prayer meetings for revival, and I'd hear some dick and pray. Lord, give us revival. Amen. And I'd say, God, give him one. I'd like to see what he'd do with it. <laughs> pray for power. God, give us Holy Ghost power. And I wondered if he'd ever seen it and known what it was. But folks, I'm here to tell you, there's no demonstration of the Savior coming until there's a desire for a divine takeover. Don't you forget that, a desire for a divine takeover. Now, there's some folks, when they deal with revival, say, now, let's don't get too excited and carry this thing too far. <clears throat> if you was out on a ship, 
and the wind was blowing and the water was filling the boat and you thought you was fixing to sink, how would you awaken the Savior? Master, don't you know we're perishing? Don't you care that we're perishing? Did I word that just right? Is that how they taught me when I was in school to word that just right? Did I get my grammar correct? Did, did I use the right subject with the right verb? Now, Master, I don't know whether I said it right, but I might need to go back to school before I could ask you to send revival, but you know we need it. Huh? Why don't you forget how you sound? If you ever get desperate, I mean desperate for a divine takeover, you'll forget about how you sound. You'll forget whether or not the subject agrees with the verb and the verb with the subject. All you want to do is for Jesus to step on deck and do something about the storm. And I'm here to tell you, there's some storms in America and we need to forget our differences as far as our idiosyncrasies are concerned and cry to Jesus and say, Jesus, America is perishing. We need you. Now you say, preacher, that's frantic. That's close to fanatic. That's right. But do you know what frantic is? Frantic just simply means a recklessness caused by despair to where you'll try anything to change the situation. Now, the only bunch who would have called this crowd fanatical was a bunch standing on the shore who wasn't in the ship. <laughs> Can't you see them sitting over there watching them out there saying, don't get too excited. Don't you think you're carrying this thing a little too far? Cut out that crying and hollering. Man, they're out there on the boat. Master, master, curse that night when we perish. Master, master. And that bunch over on the shore saying, look at that fanatic. <laughs> Pulling his hands around, screaming and hollering, praying loud enough you can hear him clean over here on the shore. Man, we don't want that bunch in our church. They get carried away. And so all those on the shore consider themselves rational and logical and practical. And that's a bunch who never has Holy Ghost revival. Man, it's that bunch that's out there facing the storms of life and Jesus places them in them situations that they can't handle until they're desperate and they're frantic for God to do something. And I'm here to tell you, we need to get back to a desperation cry and a desperation prayer. Jesus, I need you to come and take over. Lord, I got some lost loved ones. Please come and take over. I got a church that needs revival. Please come and take over. I got a situation, Lord, in my home. If you don't come, we're going to be sunk. That's what's wrong with the homes of America tonight, today. We're praying, but we're not desperately praying. Folks, when we see the devil slipped in to separate husbands and wives and scatter children and cause them to sink and destroy them, it'll cause you to cry out desperately. You say, but I don't want to offend anybody. Offend anybody? What difference does it make? It's Jesus you need. You already got the rest of them. See, that crap, you don't run to them and ask them for help because they'd be critical of you. They'd go down to the altar, pray quietly. Because that's how they'd do it if they did it. Uh-huh. And then if you'd do it fanatically, 
they say, you getting carried away. But Prescott, God, they just don't see themselves in the situation that you're in. If I'm out there on the boat and it's sinking, or if I'm in a high house that's on fire, you just forget it because I'm going to holler, get me out of this place. Jesus, 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 I'm desperate for divine takeover. And that's why we don't see as many Holy Ghost revivals as we used to because we're desperate for everything else in our churches except a divine takeover. Folks, I'm here to tell you, you had the greatest leaders on board it's ever been, but they couldn't bring revival either. Seeing the greatest preachers that's ever walked this earth, they were on this boat. But the greatest preachers in the world can't stop the storm. The greatest preachers can't produce revival. And not until the greatest preachers that ever lived get to the end of themselves, no revival's coming in their lives either. Amen. Desperation crying. Desperation praying. Facing a situation you can't handle. Calling out for Jesus. First, the storm created a situation nobody could handle but Jesus. Second, second as we saw it, created a desire for Jesus to pilot the boat. And then third, it compelled them to call on Jesus. All right, now fourth, it caused them to turn everything over to Jesus, and that's what you call a deliberate turnover. Folks, in order to have a divine takeover, You've got to have a deliberate turnover. None of this keeping sin in your life and praying for him to take over. Friend, when he takes over, you're going to have to turn the ship over to him, the sea over to him, and the storm over to him, and the situation over to him, and let him do what he wants to do about the situation. See, we want to bargain with him and say, how you going to stop a storm? Forget about how he's going to stop a storm. You don't need to know how he's going to do it. Just turn it over to the one who can do something with it. And so what did they know at this time? One thing. They knew they couldn't do anything about the storm. And if anything's going to be done, praise God Jesus was going to have to do it. But thank God for the times in my life when I faced situations and circumstances and trials that I just couldn't handle. Down deep in my heart, I said, Jesus, I'm sorry. Please, take over the pilot house. Get off the pillow, Lord. Please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I said, Jesus, here, you can have the shipman, and you can have the pilot steering wheel. Let me have the pillar. <laughs> you run the show. You run it. I'm not saying he doesn't use a human instrument. I'm speaking of an attitude and a point of Holy Ghost revival. And I'm here to tell you, dear friend, that the turning point is at the point of master control. Say, so what is this point? Simply this. At this point, our actions and reactions will determine, will determine the revival we seek. Some people, when they face storms and trials, complain and murmur and fret and stew and say it's over and we can't do anything about it no god just brought you to a place to show you that you can't produce revival and if revival comes he can do it but some of us fret and still say well not anything we can do now don't you know who's on board that ship don't you know who's in the church jesus is 
But oh, he's got to be in control, folks. And I want you to know there's a point that you're brought to, point I'm brought to, to where we cannot handle the situation. We must have a divine takeover. All right, now last, I want you to see the demonstration of the Savior. Three things. Number one is Jesus rising to the occasion. Look at verse th number 39, and he arose. Three of my favorite words. And he arose. That means he took charge and command and control. When the Lord's given me this sermon, I ask a question. Why did I have to call on Jesus? The reason was, Jesus was the only one who could get to the source of the problem. They didn't need somebody to get the water out of the boat. They needed somebody to stop the storm. Like some churches and some people, they say, well, I'm going to get rid of my problems in my life. Let's sit down and evaluate our problems and deal with our problems. You don't need to deal with your problems till you deal with the problem. Master control. A few years ago, I had a young lady who was on drugs. And I wanted so desperately to help her. She was crying out for help. She came to me. I said, I'm going to try to help you. And I quoted every verse I could think of, showed her in the Word of God, but she's nothing better. So I called Pulpit in the Shadows at that time, Fred Gage's ministry, because I had known a man by the name of Bobby Mankin who'd gotten saved through that ministry. And I talked to the man who was over the Pulpit in the Shadows and I asked him, I said, Sir, please, would you help me? He said, What's your problem? I said, I have this girl who's on drugs. I said, I'm trying to win her to Jesus and reach her for the Lord, but she's on drugs, and I, I really don't know how to help her since I hadn't been on drugs. He said, Mr. Shipman, win her to Jesus. I said, yes, sir, but you don't understand. I said, she's on drugs. He said, Mr. Shipman, win her to Jesus. I said, but you see, sir, uh, she's on drugs, and she just can't kick the habit, and she can't get off. Of he just interrupted. He said, Mr. Shipman, I've been in this for years. And said, we found that a drug addict has many problems, and drugs is one of the problems. But we found if we deal with the drug addict's problems, we never are able to help him. His problem is his relationship to Jesus Christ. And he said, if you ever settle the problem, the drug addict can handle his problems. And I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of revival meetings that never get to the source of the problem. Your backslidden condition is not because of your sin, but because you're out of fellowship with Jesus Christ. Before your sin ever became an act, your sin was committed in the attitude and there was a break between you and Jesus Christ of fellowship or you couldn't have committed the act. And you can deal with the act all you want to, but dear friend, revival's not coming till you come back to the source of the problem and get right with Jesus Christ. When you stop listing all your problems and settle the problem, then you can list your problems and get rid of them and handle them because you're in right relationship with Jesus. I'll give you two illustrations. Number one, one day his pastor's out visiting. Knocked on the door of one of his church members. No one came. He could hear all the activity in the back. Finally cracked the door and saw this lady in the kitchen mopping, 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 mopping. I mean, she was working herself frantically. She saw the pastor and said, Pastor, come help me, come help me. So he went in, grabbed him a pail, got him a mop. He mopped and wrung, mopped and wrung. All of a sudden, it dawned on him that the more water he got off the floor, the more water there was. Finally, he looked up at the faucet and the faucet had burst just spewing water. Say, I don't care how much mopping you do, if you don't cut off that crazy faucet, it's not going to do you any good. <laughs> and that's how some folks are. They're frantic, all right, but to deal with this problem, this problem, this problem, and we're forming committees and everything else. To deal with this problem, this problem, this problem, and the problem in our churches is a wrong relationship to Jesus Christ. And when we get back to that, something's going to happen. It's just like a young deacon in that church. Boy, every Sunday, 
the pastor called on this elderly deacon, and he had this prayer every time he prayed. Lord, since last we met, cobwebs have come between you and us. Please move the cobwebs. Next Sunday morning, call on that same elderly deacon. He prayed the same thing. Lord, since last we met, cobwebs have come between you and us. Please move the cobwebs. That young deacon, he got irritated every time that elderly deacon prayed there. He kept itching. I wish that pastor would call on me. I'd take care of those cobwebs. I'd take care of them. I'd take care of them. But he never did. Every Sunday morning, pastor call on that elderly deacon. That elderly deacon stand up so stoic and say, Lord, since last we met, cobwebs come between you and us. Remove the cobwebs. One Sunday, undoubtedly, the pastor called that young deacon and said, Would you lead us in prayer? He was so beside himself, he just jumped up and said, God, kill that spider. <laughs> That's what you call coming to the source of the problem. Now, if it had been us, you know what we'd have done? We'd have said, let's appoint a bailout committee. See who we're going to get to bail us out. Well, I recommend Peter, James, and John, since they're the inner circle, you know, they're the most spiritual ones, I recommend them. Well, Peter, James, John goes over here, and they have them a committee meeting. And the committee comes back and says, we recommend, since there is in the back of this boat some pails, that all of us, every man, working together. You know, laboring together, laboring of love, labors of love. Everybody get his pail, and every one of us get in the line together, and let's line up together and deal with the problems that are here. And so every one of them, one by one, he scoops his water, hands it to the next, and he hands it to the next. They smile at each other. Oh, we're doing a great job, man. Look what our committee thought of. Man, look what we're doing. Are oh, we doing great? And about that time, Kershaw comes in another wave of water, and they say, oh, no. Oh, no. <sighs> What are we going to do now? Oh, Peter says, won't you call Jesus? Shh. We don't want Jesus to think we can't handle this problem. Man, we're the greatest preachers that have ever lived. We're the greatest training. We sat under Jesus for three or for all these months now. And listen, surely you know he gave us the ability to get to the other side. Oh, no. He didn't give you that ability to do it on your own. It's his ability working through you that stops the storms. But you know what? If it had been us again, when the bailout committee failed, we'd have said, I'd pick what let's do. Let's form a get rid of the preacher committee. Because <laughs> the situation in our church wouldn't be as drastic as what it is. If it wasn't for the preacher, preacher's got to be the problem. So they get rid of the preacher committee, comes over here and says, has it ever been done in Scripture before that they got rid of the preacher and stopped the storm? Oh, yes, I remember. In the pages of the Old Testament, there was a preacher by the name of Jonah. And it was him who caused the storm. Hadn't been for him. Hadn't been for him. We wouldn't be in shape, would we? So I recommend we just pitch the preacher overboard and all our troubles will be over. I'm the first one to admit there are times to pitch the preacher overboard. But you do it in the right fashion if he's wrong. But you just better be sure, don't you get rid of the man of God. He may not be your problem. And what are you saying? I'm saying, dear friend, you don't need to form a committee when you know what's wrong. A committee is good if you have to have it, but that committee is not finding out what the mind of God is. God works through his man, and the committee works with his man to accomplish whatever God's desire is, but they don't usurp the authority that belongs to the man of God. Hey, you don't need a bailout committee. 
You don't need a get rid of the preacher committee or a jump over the, the side committee. You say, what do you need? You just need to get back to the source of your problem and Holy Ghost revival comes at the point at the end of yourself when you're ready to turn to Jesus and let him take over. That's where revival is. You say, have you experienced that? Sure have. And so have you. And so the churches. But seconds, you see, not only Jesus rising to the occasion, but Jesus rebuking the wind. Oh, verse number 39 says, And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. I talked about that yesterday. It means to muzzle the mouth of the wind. And it means to subdue to stillness. It means to be brought to silence. I want to ask you a question. What happens when you try to pilot your own boat? You lose your peace. But there's not anybody can produce peace but the Lord. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. And I want to thank God that whenever I come to the end of myself and He takes over, there's a peace and a calmness that comes in my soul. And where there was a great storm, the Bible says there was a great calm, not even a ripple. Jesus just put the muzzle on the mouth of the wind and the sea. Stop your raging, raging. And there was a mighty calm. That's a demonstration of the Savior. That's what I'm talking about today, folks. What we need is a demonstration of the Savior. We need to see what he can do. But then last, you see Jesus rebuking his disciples. Verse 40 said, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Then the Bible said they were exceedingly fearful. Did you see where it said they feared exceedingly? All of a sudden, they were more afraid of the man on board than they were the storm. Isn't that great? That's what the storms do to you. And they said, what matter of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh, what a marvelous attitude. Look who's on board. Let me show you Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Jesus took care of my storm. Jesus took care of my trial. Jesus is with me all the way through. But listen to what happened. He said, why were you so fearful? Why were you so afraid? He rebuked them. Give an illustration of them through. What our Lord is saying to his disciples is, don't you know that you wouldn't have known what you know and you wouldn't have seen what you saw if this hadn't happened to you? How many times have you gotten trials and storms and you saw the Lord? How many times, like fire furnaces, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you saw the Lord? Storms have a way of introducing you to Jesus. But my illustration is this. Tupelo, where I used to live, is known as a tornado belt. And uh, one night, my family was in the storm house. You know what a storm house is? Some folks call it storm cellar, whatever you want to call it. But we had to build one in our backyard for my mother. My mother was in the storm in 1936. It blew away Tupelo and killed over 200 people. And she wouldn't come to live with us if we didn't build a storm house. And every time it, it, it thundered, mother went to storm house. I was brought up half my young life in a storm cellar. <laughs> I have awakened many nights on my way to the storm house trying to put a shirt on or a coat on or a raincoat on. I already drenched, but mother had me by the hand, almost by the hair of the head, said, we're going to the storm house. I've slept many nights, storm cellars, all night long. And mother never went out of there until the thunder had stopped, the lightning had ceased, and she said, storm's passed. 
So I, I grew up knowing about tornadoes and tornadoes who come through and they've come through and they've come through. And I learned as a young lad to respect them. Uh, just a few years ago, about three or four years ago, there in Tupelo, one night, it was bad. So my family, myself, went down into the storm house. About 10 o'clock, I thought, I'm going to go out to the house and, and get the weather forecast. So I went out, went into the house, turned TV on, and I'm sitting there watching the forecast. And the weatherman said, <coughs> there's a line of thunderstorms coming through Arkansas. Now here I am, people of Mississippi, a line of thunderstorms coming through Arkansas, and they got tornadoes in them. But said nothing to worry about till then. About that time, fire went off, cut him off. I thought, I sure am glad they're in Arkansas. <laughs> so I started out the back door, locked the door behind me, opened the glass door, and when I closed the door with it locked and opened the glass door, all of a sudden, the rain got horizontal. I saw the garbage can go by, and a tornado passed about 300 yards in front of our house. He said, were you scared? Stiffless. <laughs> Don't tell me you won't get scared when a tornado's coming. I got better sense than that to say, boy, I wasn't afraid. I just petrified. Finally, when I think it's over, I hurried out to the cellar. Of course, too late then, see. It already gone. Well, my family thought I was dead. Uh, they heard it when, you know, they heard this mighty wind as it went by. And when I called to them, they said, oh, you all right? I said, yeah. We went out and saw where the tornado had cut a pathway from one end of Tupelo to the other. It was a mighty demonstration of power. But I want to tell you something. That was just a storm, a tornado. There's somebody who owns the storms and controls the storms who's more powerful than any tornado. And I fear him a lot more than I fear the storms of life. But it is those little storms that seem so big that introduce me to the storm stopper Jesus Christ.